Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow did join us. Shane Jensen is here from the beginning. Adi Weiner here from the beginning. Some combination yeah. of us four have, are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one 844 7866 Or email us, businessradio at Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. Good way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. Rolling into the first guest segment, we are delighted to welcome back to the show David Epstein. David is the author of a brand new book. It's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He is, as some of you know, the author of, a few years ago, New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene. Adi Weiner, big fan. We're going to hear Adi's why Adi loves this book so much. He was an investigative reporter before then with a number of publications and has had a terrifically interesting life. Fantastic. We can, without even having seen the book in detail, I know we can recommend it. He's always interesting to read. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling from this morning, David? Uh, Manhattan. Manhattan. It's uh, not Brooklyn. I thought every writer's in Brooklyn. Come on. That is that is true. I was in Brooklyn before, and I think I could see like half of the authors I knew, like their Wi-Fi networks named after themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So your your book just came out. You must be doing a lot of publicity right now. How's your life? How's your life right now, David? It's it's busy. I mean, this book I got to say got out of the gate faster than I expected. What does that mean? Um, so, so it's just gotten really, like, there's been, you know, so reviews in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR, like, all appeared yesterday. Okay, um, okay. Basically, at the same time, you know, and, and the, it, the CBS Morning Show um, had me on. Uh, I, ha- I have a four-month-old, so um, busy times. Uh, but, <laughs> but, no, it's great. I mean, I didn't expect it to, to start this fast. So the so, week has gotten very hectic very quickly in a very good way. So, David, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, since I'm a marketing professor, you just brought up a related analytics marketing topic. What do we know about the impact of reviews on book sales? I mean, there's been lots of academic studies of this. I know it makes every author feel good when it's well-reviewed, but, like, do you know, like, if the New York Times likes it, is that more important than you're going on a book tour or just distribution, marketing spend by your publisher? What do we know about that? I really do not, and and I try to actually... <laughs> in some ways stay away from uh, certain things like I work as hard as I can on marketing but certain types of numbers you know I, I try not to like um, too early fall into some of like the McNamara fallacy where I'm like focusing on, on the measurables because I'm, I don't think anybody's really that sure what matters exactly so for my last book for the sports gene it actually got reviewed in the New York Times in the science section which I think was pretty helpful and I sort of like noticed a bounce mm. um, normally I, I really don't I really don't know and I'm not sure I think it's such a moving target with the way social media is. And I think now newsletter recommendations are important that that I'm not sure anybody really knows at the moment. So you sort of try to, <laughs> try to diversify. 
David's got a he's got a considered philosophical position on ignoring the numbers. It's not because he doesn't like numbers or or doesn't. He's like his position is like don't really know. You'll get distracted. It's hard to know what these numbers. You know, you 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 would normally look to history for what these numbers mean, but given that the that particular industry is changing, well, all industries are changing so rapidly. It's, but that, it's hard that to one know. more than most. That well, yeah. David, most. David, this is Adi. Uh, I have to say, I bought the sports gene twice um, without reading a review. So really, twice is one one of the f- f- only books I think I can think of that have ever. You know, you can read the same one more yeah, than once. I, I you don't the, have to do that. I, I needed for, the Kindle copy. No, 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 you can't. You have no, to. no, yeah, sorry, sorry. I don't no, the, the, forget the, what I said. The excuse is I first time bought it, bought the, the the actual paperback version, and then I bought the Kindle version so I could carry so, it around. So, Adi, tell us why you like the sport. So, t- first, David. Oh, I'm going to be emba- I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass our author. D- David, when did the book come out? <laughs> the sports gene? It came out. Um, Six years ago, so so this new book is out a mere six years after my agent told me that only an idiot would let it be five years before you. <laughs> well, clearly you're not suffering, so this is fine. But let's before we get to range, let's hear a little bit from Adi and unsolicited, un- unsolicited. Okay, so one of the things I, re- I really enjoy that first of all, you're a wonderful storyteller, and and when it comes to books, it's that's an extremely important aspect of it. But it also collects lots and lots of data in a in a very compelling way. So this, I never knew anything about the impact of genetics, in particular, on sports, and it's, it's actually quite varied and interesting. And you really give both sides of the story. Um, although there's there's plenty of evidence on that clearly that that genetics is an extremely important aspect of uh, of performance, but it is certainly not the whole story, not even close to the whole story. And the way it, it, it tells is is very interesting. What I'm actually very interested to read the the next book, Range, which I did start last night, um, and I obviously couldn't finish it, <laughs> but again. You have that, but I, I'm imagining that this is a much harder topic because the sports gene is—I mean—that's measurable. So range is all about, you know. I guess the, the, the substance of it, and I'd actually like you to tell us about it, is is um, what's better to be specialized or to be broad. But these are things that are much harder to measure. Yeah, or, or yeah, I mean, the outcomes that you're looking at must just be harder to quantify in general. Sure. I mean, you hit something on the head there. So with, with the sports scene, I thought it was tough because sort of when I was going around to publishers, they said, so you're going to come down nature or nurture, basically. Um, and I sort of said, well, I, I'm not really sure, but I'm sure it's some of both. And, and the truth is, it's, you know, it can be different mixtures to get to the same outcome in many, in many cases. That, that's sort of that, that story I tell in the sports scene called The Tale of Two High Jumpers, where two guys get to the same place via very, very different uh, nature and nurture paths. But this range was a much more formidable challenge in this sense, because I look at this this issue of how broad or specialized to be, and I think that's something that's very important to a lot of people, maybe to everybody that we consider, at least implicitly, probably usually explicitly at some point. Um, and it's a, an amorphous topic that people usually talk about only with intuition. So my feeling was kind of, can I take this, you know, with, with the sports gene, I was saying this nature versus nurture in sports that we all talk about like crazy. Can I make this conversation a little more interesting and productive mm. and a little more grounded in evidence, even though I'm not the final word? And, and it's sort of the same thing for range. Can I make this, this discussion that's important to a lot of people that we have a little more productive and a little more interesting? But it's really difficult because even, you know, even the, the, the classification of, of generalist and specialist is matters of degree and semantics in, in right. many ways. Right, right. It's, it's um, not like genes, which so, you have them or you don't. That's right. That's right. So, there, so there, there are parts of the book like where I talk about studies of inventors and, and specialists make contributions, and, gen, and, and they're usually measured by you know, the number of different patent classes they've worked across in their career. So the specialist will drill down into like one or two. The, the generalist will work across many different 
um, technological classes as classified by the Patent Office. And um, you can see that they make different types of contributions. So some are better in certain areas and some are better in others. But the ones that are the best are, are the, the sort of what's called the polymaths, where they kind of start in an area, and instead of drilling down into that area, they, they sort of sacrifice a little breath to, be, to become broad, even broader than the generalist inventors eventually. But they still started anchored in an area. So in that chapter, you know, I kind of go away from my own subtitle and say, like, you know, the polymaths were the ones who, who, who were the best. And so, you know, I see that as them adding range when they could have just been deeper, but, but the just broad people only don't come out as the best in that, even though they make contributions, right? Did, so did your editor, goes on, I kind of try to... Did your like, editor lose a bloody battle on that one? I mean, they must have hated your, your going against the subtitle of the book. No, because, well, so the subtitle book didn't exist when I was writing this stuff. So when I pitched the proposal, I, 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 my editor will probably be angry if I share this program, me saying this stuff. But um, when I was pitching the proposal, I called it Roger versus Tiger. It sort of came out of, after the sports scene, I was invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to debate Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and, you know, he's very clever, and I didn't want to get embarrassed. Um, <laughs> so I tried to anticipate his arguments, and... I figured he'd have to argue for early specialization in sports, so I just went and looked at the available data, and it turned out that the athletes who go on to become elite have a so-called sampling period early. They play a variety of sports, gain general skills, learn about their interests and abilities, and delay specialization uh, until after peers who, who plateau at lower levels. And now there are some studies that match athletes for ability level a certain age and track them over several years and find that the ones who, who do more diversity sort of in their early teen years improve more. And so... I called this the Roger versus Tiger problem. You know, so Tiger Woods obviously early specialization. Roger Federer did did some of everything, delayed specialization. Which one was the norm? And it was it was the Roger uh, path. And I wanted to see. Originally, I wanted to see when should you be a Roger and when should you be a Tiger. And the proposal was called Roger versus Tiger, and that's why the intro is called Roger versus Tiger. And I was going to examine that in different domains, but. It, but I started finding the, the Roger side of things much less covered in any other books and, and sort of more interesting and, and more ubiquitous. And so that's sort of the framework I was starting with. And then mm -hmm. at the end, you kind of say, like, well, you know, what's a good title? Mm -hmm. um, but that, that was the approach I went into it. So, um, you know, and, I, and, and so I think when you see the book, it's sort of a little messier. So, David, this is... Yeah, David, this is Eric Brother. First of all, I'm so glad you talked about the matching component of it, because one of the classic arguments you would have would be, well, of course, the greater athletes can afford to specialize. So first of all, thank you for bringing up to our audience here on Wharton Moneyball the importance of controlling for overall ability in this, because I think that's really important, because otherwise you could get self-selection. Um, one of the things we always talk about, though, is do you look at the length of the career? So it's not just whether their peak performance, this gets back to Shane's earlier point about how it's hard to measure, do generalists just tend to stay with sports longer? Do they have less burnout? Do they have less injuries? Do you, do you look at not just, let's call it... Can they adapt, I guess, to changing times? Yeah, what, what, what do you actually see, and, and how do you talk about it? Yeah, I haven't looked at, at total length of career so much, because there, there are some studies on that, but they, I think... Um, often suffer from some kind of biased selection problems, basically, the, the way they work. Um, but so I tried to look at, um, like, injury rates, right? So, so some of, in youth athletes, it's a doctor named Neeru Jayanti ran a really neat longitudinal study where he looked at uh, the likelihood of um, youth athletes suffering, like, in a, what he called an adult-style overuse injury. So this could be, you know, torn ligaments, stress fracture in the back, something that, that would... Tommy John surgery in a 17-year-old, in a for example. Right, right, right. And so 
something that would and Tommy John the first one you have a lot of people get back but that's the second one not so much um, and so things that could not only affect their athletic career but but their their life and the main predictor was specialization so someone who was doing the sport nine months a year and not other sports and one of the interesting things was he found that there was seemed to be some protective effect of playing multiple sports so it wasn't just about total hours in sports um, so the the kids that were doing nine months of one sport but were also doing some other sports at the same time seemed to have some protective effect. Right. I started to see that sort of trend. So like some of the coolest data is like Cirque du Soleil, um, their physiologist, a guy named Dean Krillars. I mean, they have a lot of Olympic athletes, former Olympic athletes, uh, and they're incredible performers. And looking at, at some of this kind of data, they decided to have some of their performers learn the basics of several other performers' Um, disciplines, not because they expected them to perform them, but just to see, you know, if it would make them fresher, if it would have an effect on injury rates. Wow. They compare their injury rates to Canadian Gymnastics. It's a Canadian company. And so this is, you're taking time away from these people who have to do like 100 shows a year, right? right? So that's precious time and right. trying something else. And it dropped their injury rates by like a third. Really? So now huh. they've, they've standardized that and they've moved it into the, the National Circus School where they where they draw a lot of their talent from. And I don't know... There's a lot of theories about why that seems to make people less fragile, and I can fit lots of stories in my head for why that would work. Give us a couple. Give us a couple. You know, I, I think when you do these re- repetitive types of movements, like you can see this in runners, right, where if you go from, uh, like when I was, I was a nationally competitive runner, and then for a little while when I was injured to stay in shape, I started doing some jujitsu and realized that I had, like, no muscles in my hips whatsoever because <laughs> you have to use your hips a lot in jujitsu. Right. And turned out that this problem that I was having – um, in my knee was really originating in my hips. And your weakness in your but, hips. Yeah. So can I, right. so one, one of the things we've done here at Penn is we've invested in our athletic system in a, a fairly expensive system which is designed to measure your, the athlete's imbalances. So they get on a force plate and they jump up and down and they try yeah, to yeah. determine whether or not their different components of their, of their musculature is imbalanced because if an athlete gets over, overdeveloped in one area. So the classic example would be, a, say, a, you know, a, a football player who runs backwards all the time, right? So they're a defensive yeah. lineman or something. Yeah. And then they have to move forward and they can get injured because they're, they're, the muscles that move forward are actually quite different than the ones that move backwards. So they measure this and then if there's an imbalance that, that, that seems to arise based on the measurements, they put them in a very specific training um, classification in order to determine whether or not they, you know, to bring them back to, to equilibrium. And do, I mean, I assume Penn has multi-sport athletes or at least athletes oh, yes. that have experience in multiple sports. Do are they well, less imbalanced? I've just I've been negotiating to get all this data. Oh. We not only have all the data from the all the athletes, we have the ones who didn't choose to do it, the ones who've done it, and we have insurance payments on their on their on their on their on their injuries. So wow. we have an immense amount and the preliminary data seems to be strongly suggestive that it certainly has brought down the insurance claims. The problem of course and as all of this is the variance is enormous. So it's, it, the, to determine whether or not this is actually the causal effect is, is still some time off. We're talking to David yeah, Epstein. I, I David is the author of a brand new book. It's called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Of course, David had a very successful book six years ago called The Sports Chain. You can follow David on Twitter, at David Epstein. One of his victories in life is having the Twitter handle, at David Epstein. You can follow, <laughs> you can follow him there. So we're talking about the injury prevention aspect of this. What about just getting into the right sport, the information you gain from sampling broadly? What, how big a factor is that? I think, I think it's, a, it's a huge factor. Um, and I think that, so, so yeah, I, I think 
and I think we're going the wrong in the wrong direction on some of those things. So I was just looking at statistics, right? So athletes typically don't you don't intuit your skills and interests necessarily all that well before you actually try something. That's not unique and to athletes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's not unique to athletes. So later in the book, I write about that more in, in sort of a career-matching sense. But okay. um, that, that we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. You have to actually right. do stuff and reflect on it because your, your introspection is constrained by your, your roster of previous experiences. Basically. Right, right. And um, so I was just looking at the UEFA uh, U17 2019 championships. Well, I need uh, to know what U, U, UEFA, what is UEFA? Uh, it's it's uh, the European Soccer okay. um, uh, League, the, the U17 championships. So okay. like you know, the biggest competition for um, a U-17 soccer in the world, basically. Got it, got it. And um, I was looking for the relative age effect data, you know, so this this finding that shows up in youth sports that uh, you have this overabundance of athletes who were born in the first couple months of yeah. whatever the selection year is. Right, right, okay. right. And because the coaches interpret, you know, at age 8 or whatever when they're doing selection, the kids that are, you know, Nine, ten, eleven months older are actually much more mature, and the sure. coaches like that for for talent. Gladwell and, loves this, I think. And uh, yep, yep. And as selection has gotten earlier and earlier and earlier, this has been exacerbated. So at these youth right. championships, forty-seven percent of all the competitors were born in January, February, and March. Wow, six percent in the last three uh, months of the year. Right, right. And that is, it, and it's getting worse. And I think the reason it's getting worse is because selection, in many cases, is getting earlier. And the earlier it goes, the more you just exacerbate that relative age effect and right. you don't end up giving people a chance to, to figure out who they are and what they can do and what their best sport is. Because if they even want to be in, in any pipeline in the beginning, they have, to, they have to specialize so early that they don't even get to, to see what they're good at. And the, mm-hmm. and the coaches might not even get to see because they deselect them before they've even developed it all. So I think the earlier we push for specialization and selection – the less likely you get the right person in the right sport or give them any chance to, to figure out to figure out who they are. And, you know, like, and it's a, look at, like, like Brooks Kepka right now, who, who's, who's lighting the golf Please, world. please. Anything you got on him is helpful. I mean, how I mean, can you explain that guy? <laughs> he, played, he played a whole bunch of different contact sports. I guess he liked contact sports and got in. He was in a passenger in a car accident when he was, like, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something like that, young. And injured his face and his parents were like do some non-contact sports for now and that's the first time he played golf and that you know worked out okay um, and so although he apparently doesn't really like it that much no, thinks the no. game is too long <laughs> too slow is that true <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just, yeah so and, and you know other places like Great Britain and Australia which had these incredible home Olympic performances one of the main changes they made was the so-called talent transfer programs where they would take athletes who had done a bunch of sports they were good but not going to make the national team in the sport they specialized in. And before they kicked them out of the pipeline, they said, well, why don't you just try some other sports right, right. Um, you know, before we kick you out? And, and they got gold medalists out of those that people in sports that they had not participated in at the previous Olympics. Yeah, so David, that was going to be my question for you, very much related to range, is that can you watch have – have there been studies? Can you watch someone at sport A or B and say, you know what? This could be somebody good at sports C, D, or E. How good is the? How observable are the skills that are needed, and are or how, and how predictable is yeah. general generalization? I guess. Yeah, I I don't think it's that pretty. I mean, when I was over in Australia looking at Aussie rules football, they were trying to do this with college with NCAA football players. Like they realized they want tight ends, and they're scouting certain ones. And they've actually had some success. 
um, with with pulling people over. But I still think it's it's largely unpredictable. But but what does seem to show up is mm. the number of hours that someone needs to become elite in a, in a so-called invasion sport. Like this is a sport where you need anticipatory skills. Mm. Um, so so sports where you know volleyball, basketball. Uh, football, where a ball or people are trying to get past each other, and things are happening in real time, and they happen so fast that we can't actually react to them. So, so the athletes, based on on practice, have learned how to pick up cues so they can react faster than mm-hmm. they'd be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it looks like when people have played a variety of attacking sports when they're younger, it, it lowers the number of hours they need to become elite in a new attacking sport that that they try. And so the Australian Institute of Sport has some cool data on that. It looks to me kind of like I, I was going to write a chapter in range on on language, but I decided not to because I thought, like, there's a lot of research about how being multilingual alters executive function, and actually I went through that and could not convince myself that any of it was legit. Interesting. Um, okay, I, helpful. I dropped that. Yep. So, so but, um, D- David, okay. I, I wanted to call your, you know, bring to our my colleagues in attention something from your book, which is interesting. You talk about Nobel Prize winners and other sort of superstar, you know, academics, and you point out that there seems to be an over abundance, an enormous overabundance of extraordinary talent or, or attention maybe um, to a, a, another area completely different to their academic interest. And yeah. and you imply that somehow that's causal. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. Maybe you can explain to, to everyone what, what, what exactly you observed. I don't necessarily know if it's causal, but it, it certainly, I think, even if it's not causal, still goes against the, the normal advice to just focus on what you're doing and not do other stuff. Um, and so this was, this was research, and there's, there's a couple lines of this research, but the one you're referring to is a study that looked at the avocations of scientists and found that scientists in general tend to um, have about the same number of hobbies as, as the general public, but nationally recognized scientists have, are much more likely to have serious hobbies like writing, music playing, acting, uh, being magicians, mechanics, woodworkers, whatever. Um, and Nobel laureates are much, much more likely still. And there are a couple other studies I mentioned that are similar to that, where scientists and engineers who, who make creative contributions seem to also have creative hobbies. And one of the quotes I love about this from the Spanish Nobel laureate, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the so-called father of modern neuroscience, where he says these, these innovative types are, are broader than you think. And to him who observes them from afar, it appears as though they are dissipating their energies when, in fact, they're strengthening and channeling them. Hmm. Beautiful that, quote. that seems to come up sort of over and over in the book in Abby Griffin's research about serial innovators, which is later in the book, in Howard Gruber, what he calls the network of enterprise of creative achievers. And so it seems to me that a huge number of researchers are, are using different language to look at this same thing. And what they're finding is that what looks like these side hobbies often influence what these people actually end up doing, mm-hmm. the creative achievement they actually end up making. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree to which it's causal, I think, is a little bit hard to say, but, yeah. but that's why yeah, I have to include yeah. some of the... But again, I think it's... I think the standard notion would be at the waste of time. Right. So I think it's, you know, it, it, it's not preventing them at the very least. Right, and then right, some of right. the studies that I tried to pick, like this comic book study, where I tried to pick this one specifically because so David, so much of sort of this... Oh, yeah. Dave, we're out of time. We want to hear what you're... Oh. T- you're taunting us with a comics book study on this causality, but we're going to have to let it go for another conversation. Listen, no I know it's a super busy time for you, Appreciate your taking, yeah. you know, when the New York Times and Today Show are calling, we really appreciate your giving us some time. Love the work. Love the skepticism you bring to it. Love the empiricism you bring to it. And wish you the best with the new book. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me, as always. Absolutely. David Epstein, you can follow him at David Epstein. He is the author of a brand new book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one half to go. Come back and join us after the break. 